It's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful life. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Last year, on a Wednesday night, we covered some of this text. We'll cover some things differently today. Some things will be very similar. Uh, It's not the same message, but... uh, Anyway, some of you on Wednesday nights will recall this if your memory goes back about 18 months, okay? Uh, It's a wonderful life. 2 Peter chapter 3. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word, please? 2 Peter chapter 3. And then when we get down to verse 11, I'm going to ask you to read with me out loud through the end of verse 14. Peter says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept into the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord's not slack to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He's patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Let's read together. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. Father, give us ears to hear. That was Jesus' invitation to the seven churches of Revelation over and over again. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. God, may we hear this morning. God, give us your grace to respond in faith, in repentance, in surrender, but also looking with that blessed hope. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. 
This past week of Christmas, one night, Connie and I watched a classic movie that I have never seen before, believe it or not. And you guessed it, it's A Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart. He stays home, he takes over the savings and loan from his father. Just like his father, he's very generous with the townspeople. Whenever somebody hits hard times, he does what he can to help them, even giving them money out of his own pocket. Well, his uncle one day is taking over an $8,000 deposit to the bank, and he wads it up inside a newspaper. An evil Mr. Potter, who owns most of the town and wants to put the savings and loan out of business, is in the bank. Jimmy Stewart's uncle, uh, again, is in there with the deposit, sees Mr. Potter. He lays down the newspaper on the desk in front of Mr. Potter to chat for a moment, leaves the paper there, thinking that the 8000 is in his coat pocket. He goes up to the bank teller's window and it's not there. He panics. He can't remember what he's done with it. And folks, that was in the day that $8,000 must have been like a half a million dollars. It was enough to put the savings and loan in a crisis and maybe even drive him out of business. Evil Mr. Potter takes the $8,000. Now, upon learning of the missing 8,000, Jimmy Stewart goes home in a mess. He's sure he will go to jail with everybody charging him with misappropriation of funds. He goes off the deep end wishing that he's never been born. His guardian angel grants him the wish of never having been born. Suddenly, nobody in town knows him anymore. He never had kids. He never married his wife, Mary. And things are miserable for him. At the end, he wants his life back. He decides he has a wonderful life after all. The angel gives him his life back. The townspeople hear about the missing funds. They take up a collection and they save the day. And everybody lives happily ever after It's a wonderful life, a happy ending. That's what Peter points out here. Ultimately, it's going to be a happy ending for Christians. Now, folks, that doesn't mean easy street now. In fact, these are very anxious days for a lot of people. There's lots of evil Mr. Potters out there. And there are terrible things that happen in a fallen world. On top of terrible things, there are things that just fall in the category of the uncertain. Things that we're anxious about because we don't see tomorrow. Lately, the stock market's been going nuts. People are wondering what it's going to look like. And what it's going to look like with the European Union when March of 2019, Brexit, all the moving pieces finally fall into place. 
What's that going to do to the, to the world markets and economies? There are immigration issues. There's this whole idea or this whole issue with Syria. There's the government shutdown. On and on we could go. There are these catastrophic storms that we've experienced this past year. Now, folks, to some degree, since Genesis 3, these are the types of things that have always happened in a fallen world. So we dare not suddenly become like Chicken Little, that the sky's falling. However, you do have to admit that the blind optimism of former days, many decades ago, is long gone and it's been gone for 60 or 70 years. Somebody recently put it, a survey of the world leaves one with the uncomfortable feeling that in spite of the efforts of many well-intentioned men in every country, civilization is sliding downhill. A hopeless story it would be indeed if it were not for The Christian message. We, says Peter, according to Christ's promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now folks, discussion about the return of Christ has always brought on a lot of fascination. But the Bible never talks about it just to fascinate us. It's not for fascination. It's not merely for information. But it is for transformation and preparation. In other words, we're not to be left behind. Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many will be on that road. Narrow is the road that leads to eternal life. And Jesus says, make sure you're one of those few. Be prepared. And that's what Peter is talking about in this chapter. He's talking about what preparation looks like. Now, of course, we've just celebrated the first advent of Jesus Christ. We live between the times. We live between the first advent and the second advent. Again, we've just celebrated the first advent. The incarnation. Emmanuel. God with us. We're waiting on the second advent. We're in the last days. The last days were ushered in by the first advent. So how are we to live between the times? That's what Peter is talking about here. And what we will see is that our confidence is not to be in this world. We are not to lay up our treasures in this world. Parents... Are we preparing our children for eternity? Or are we only concerned about the football game or the soccer game next week and how they're going to do? Are we only concerned about the next hot item of designer clothing? Or the next cell phone that might come out? Are we overextending ourselves with things of the world so that we have no time, no energy, and no resources for the things of God? Are we selfishly feeling feeling every moment of every day of our lives with trivial things that have no eternal value whatsoever? 
What are we doing? Folks, what we are doing each day with our resources and our time shows if we really comprehend Peter's message here. Again, he's showing us how to live wisely in these times, between the times. We don't have to worry that if we live for God, we're going to miss out on anything. When we live for God, ultimately we will see it's a wonderful life. First of all, I want you to notice with me, Peter says, We are to be aware or be alert to present dangers. Be aware or be alert to present dangers. He says here in verses 1 and 2, remember, be mindful. You remember Simon Peter himself had gone through a period in his life where he did not remember the words of the Lord apparently. You remember that? And he ended up denying the Lord three times. So you know what? When Simon Peter says, I want you to remember... He knows what it's like to not remember and the consequences of that. He wants them to give serious attention to his warning and to his words. He mentions here that he wants them to live in view of God's timetable the right way so that they will engage in wholesome thinking. It is amazing to me how much, how often the mind is mentioned in the scripture. We're to gird up the loins of our minds, 1 Peter 1 says. Paul in Romans 12 says we are to be transformed in our minds. With our minds, we are bombarded every day with all the messages out there in the world. I was reading just the other week a wonderful little book by John R.W. Stott entitled, Your Mind Matters. He was talking in part about how the modern day evangelical church doesn't want to think anymore. And the consequences that that is going to end up bringing on the church. He was talking about how liberal churches tend to just do social action. And they don't want to think about sound doctrine. They don't cover sound doctrine. They just want to do without thinking. And then he said charismatic churches, the emphasis often is on feeling or experience. It doesn't matter what you think or what doctrine is. What is your feeling at the moment? What is your experience? He was writing about how in the evangelical church we need to base our experience and our feelings and our actions on sound doctrine. Our minds need to be fully engaged. God has given us sound doctrine for a reason because he has revealed himself in certain ways. When we come to Christ, we are to devote our minds to the study of God's Word. Our minds are to be transformed. Remember what the old commercials used to say? A mind is a terrible thing to waste. We waste it in the worst kind of way if we don't allow God to transform our minds. God said, my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. He's revealed himself in his word. He's higher than us, but he's made himself known. 
Are you alert? Are you prepared with your mind? Are you thinking? When we get back to our study in Hebrews in chapters 5 and 6, the writer of Hebrews is going to emphasize, he's going to say, you know what? Some of you by now, you ought to be teachers. You ought to be leaders. But you're still babies. You're still babies and I'm having to give you milk instead of solid meat because your minds are not trained on the things of God. You're not ready. Again, the emphasis is on preparation of the mind. We are to constantly engage our minds with the Word of God. And one of the things Peter wants us to remember with our minds is that the Word of God plainly warns us. What's the first thing we see here? That scoffers will come. When will they come? They will come in the last days again. When are the last days? The last days began with the first advent of Jesus Christ. We're now in the last days for more than 2,000 years. Why is it called that? Because Jesus was the final and complete way that God was going to speak to us. There's nothing else coming after him. He's what the Old Testament pointed to. So the last days are wonderful days of grace. But the last days are also dangerous times. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that as the last days go on and it gets near the end of the end you're going to notice what perilous times these are he says because men are going to be lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God and because of that they're going to do all sorts of evil things while God is at work in the most wonderful of ways in the last days Satan is also at work in sinister ways. Folks, it is important to see in what Peter is talking about here that the final chapter of human history on this earth as we know it, the final chapter is now being written. When's Jesus going to come back? Nobody knows. Jesus said we can see the signs of the times and be sufficiently warned. But the emphasis here that Peter wants them to understand, the emphasis is what? Be alert. Be ready. When he returns, not only will the earth and the heavens be eventually destroyed, but he's going to recreate everything. We're looking for a new heavens and a new earth. And the new heavens and the new earth will be the home of those who are born again. Those who have followed Jesus Christ. And so being in the last days, what are we to do about it? Are we going to attach ourselves to the world that's passing away and be destroyed with it? Or are we going to attach ourselves to Jesus Christ and enter into the glory of the new heavens and the new earth? Folks, you see, we have a tremendous Christian hope. There is a better day coming for the saints of God. A place of glory, a place void of all the evil that we see going on around us today. But in the meantime, Peter is saying here, there's going to be scoffers. And we meet them in society every day. They are folks who do not believe the gospel. 
Notice what he says in verse 3. Peter says they don't believe because they want to walk according to their own sinful desires and lust. They love their sin too much. And so they scoff at the Christian message. They scoff at our Christian hope because they know that to believe the Christian gospel would mean that they have to repent. On the other hand, believers are to show a change in their lives. We're to walk in truth and holiness and in love. Scoffers will come. Notice the second thing he says about them. Scoffers even deny that Jesus is coming again. Verse 4, they're saying, where is he? If he's real, if he's Lord, why hasn't he come back yet? And they go on to say, he's not coming because everything just keeps going every day like it's always done. A third thing here he says about this. Scoffers forget what God has already done. In verses 5 and 6, he's saying that they're pointing out, they're saying since the fathers have fallen asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. This is called uniformitarianism. Now stay with me. It sounds difficult. It's not difficult at all. Uniformitarianism. What's uniform? The same, right? A kid is in a school, a private school. They wear uniforms. What's that mean? Everybody's dressed the same. And the idea here is these scoffers apparently were acting like we live in a closed system and God never intervenes. And so everything just stays the same on the face of the earth as it's always been. But Peter says this is not true because God does intervene. Case study number one, what's Peter say? Just look at creation. God spoke and it was so. He created this world out of water. Case study number two, he says here, what God do next? He destroyed the world with water. Noah's flood. Evidence, everything has not stayed the same. God has intervened. These scoffers are willingly ignoring that. Peter could have cited other examples. He could have cited God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He could have decided, uh, uh, declared all the miracles in the Old and New Testament. He could have cited how God broke into history in the incarnation. But whatever examples Peter might have cited, it wouldn't have mattered. Because he says these scoffers are determined to ignore the biblical record. What's he say here? They deliberately overlook. Unbelief is not simply a matter of the head. It's a matter of the heart. Men still do this today. Take take. The example of the flood. It's amazing how in the geological record there's great evidence for Noah's flood. A lot of scientists and geologists see this so clearly. Others deny it. Also, isn't it interesting how just about in every single ancient culture they had some kind of story about a flood. Why do you think they did that? Because there was a flood. 
Now, they might have added their pagan things to their stories, but they recorded a flood. But again, why do scoffers scoff? Peter says they, they, they want to continue to live according to their own desires, their own lusts. They want to do what they want to do. They do not want to recognize the sovereign God because then they would be accountable to that sovereign God. But Peter says here, God's destroyed this world before. And guess what? That's evidence that he'll do it again. The fact that he's already done it is evidence he'll do it again. Second major point I want you to see. Peter says, understand present preservation. Look at verse 7, what he says in verse 7. He says, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept into the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. First of all, he points out here, this earth is only preserved now by God's word and God's will. You remember what everybody was doing four or five decades ago? Everybody was worried about either somebody in the U.S. government or Russia was going to do what? Push that button and destroy the world. Nuclear bombs. That led to what? The Cold War. But what's portrayed in all of that? What's the mentality? It's still portrayed. It's the idea that men hold the future of this world in their hands. Is that right? No. Who holds the future? God does. And if men do bring it to an end through doing something, guess what? It's only because they were vessels in the hands of a sovereign God. I think of Judas. Judas is a prime case. God said... He had chosen Judas to do exactly what Judas did. He'd raised up Judas for that purpose. It wasn't a surprise to God what Judas did. It was in the plan of God. And yet Judas was still accountable for what he did. Now that's a a teaser, isn't it? God raised him up to do what he did and yet Judas was accountable. But the point is, men are not directing the affairs of history. God is. God's directing it all. And in the meantime, whatever happens, Romans 8.28 says, God is using all things for the good of those who are His. Isn't that wonderful? All things, even, even evil things, God uses for His purposes and His good. God God is able to take even the devil's sword and cut the devil's head off with the devil's own sword. You know what I think about? I think of Calvary. Don't you know that the devil must have been rejoicing over Calvary? But then, lo and behold, Calvary was God's plan to save sinners. But he used the unbelief and the rebellion and the evil of men to do it. But it was God's plan. I think of Joseph being sold into slavery, ending up in prison in Egypt. And, but in prison, God used Joseph in the interpretation of dreams. And he became the prime minister of Egypt. Joseph ended up telling his brothers, What you meant for evil, 
God used for good. Folks, I'm certainly not making light that there's evil in the world today, but what I'm trying to get you to see is that God is able even to take men's evil and use that evil for His purposes. God's sovereign. The point is, he's saying here, that that all that is going on in the world is not out of God's hands. God is not some pathetic deity sitting on some miserable little throne in heaven wringing his hands and saying, Oh dear, man is just really messing things up. What am I going to do now? God's in control and he always will be. The whole point is we need to understand it is God who is preserving this world. It's not yet destroyed because God hasn't decreed it yet. Before God decrees it, all the wars on the face of the earth will not spell the end. But when God does decree it, all of the peace on earth will not prevent it coming to an end. third major point he's talking about here is we need to rest assured of God's timing. Look at verse 8 and 9. But do not, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. A thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack or slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's timing, He's pointing out here, is different than man's timing. A day to God is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. In other words, if you're eternal God, what is time? You know, to us, a thousand years is a long time. But if you're God and you were there a trillion years ago and you're going to be there a trillion years from now, what's a thousand years here and there? It's nothing. A thousand years is a speck of dust. It's meaningless. And Peter, Peter is saying the scoffers forget this. They forget that time is different. To God than it is to us. And they're forgetting that God is not working out His purposes on our timetable. That's what they're ignoring. And then he points out, secondly here, God's not slack. God's not a procrastinator. He's not slack concerning his promise. What promise? The the promise of deliverance of the righteous and destruction of the wicked. He points out in verse 9, God is long-suffering. Not only is God timeless, God is tender. Delays in the end are for the purposes of preaching the gospel. God is long-suffering and patient. It's just like God told Paul in the book of Acts when Paul was going into Corinth and facing tremendous persecution. God told him in a vision, do not be afraid because I have many people in this city. Folks, think about what's going on there. Paul has not even evangelized Corinth yet. But God says, I want you to go because I have many in that city. 
Paul recognized this. He said to Timothy in 2 Timothy, I endure all things for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that's in Christ Jesus. God knows those who are His, as 2 Timothy 2.19 points out. And so God is patient and He's getting the gospel out until every last one of His sheep comes into His fold. You know, amazingly though, even despite God's grace, Revelation 9 says the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands and so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and silver. They did not repent of their murders, nor their sorceries, nor of their immoralities, nor of their thefts. Men continue in evil. But even in the midst of that, God is long-suffering and patient. The gospel's going out and God is drawing his people unto himself, not willing that even one of them should perish. Folks, that's good news. That's the best news. And then lastly, what's Peter say? Be ready for coming destruction and recreation. Look at verse 10. He says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The end is coming. Our hope. Our future is not in this world. Now while we, were, while we are in this world, we are to work for the betterment of this world. We are to be salt and light. But guess what? Our hope lies elsewhere. Peter says here, we're looking for that place that's going to be the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. So we work for a better world now, but we're looking for what God has for us. He says the day of the Lord will come as a thief. It's going to be sudden. Going to catch people by surprise like Jesus said in his parables of this. If if the owner of the house knew at what time the thief was going to break in, he'd have stayed up and waited on him. He's going to come like a thief. And Peter says here it's going to be a day of total destruction. Revelation points out that at the end of the millennium, and there are a couple of ways to look at this, but at the end of the millennium, at the great white throne judgment, heaven and earth is going to flee away. There's going to be found no place for them. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Folks, just as God spoke the world into existence, he's going to speak it out of existence. Man's hand is not going to wipe out the earth. God is. There's going to be global warming all right look at verse 10 God's going to burn it all up and then God's going to make all things new William Barclay says in biblical thought the last time is the end of one age and the beginning of another 
It's not only a time of ending, it is a time of a new beginning. It's not only a time of destruction, it is a time of recreation. It is last in the sense that things as they are pass away, but leads not to world obliteration, but world recreation. In other words, the last hour and the last days lead not to extinction but to consummation. So here's the real point. Peter's laid this foundation to say to them basically what he begins saying in verse 11. The sermon after the sermon. I love the way the biblical writers do that. Paul will say finally, and he'll go on for another chapter, and then say finally again, and then go on for two chapters. So going on and on and on, is, it's, it's biblical, isn't it, Steve? It's biblical. Amen, Melvin, preach it. So what's Peter say here? What's the meaning of all this? Since everything as we know it's going to be burned up, God's making all things new, Peter is saying you need to be holy now and you need to live for God. And as you're holy and living for God, you need to be looking. When's it all going to happen? It's going to happen right on time. When is right on time? Right on time. Dr. Horatius Bonar retired to rest. He would do this every night. The last action before he would lay down to sleep was to draw aside the curtain and look up into the sky. And he would say, perhaps tonight, Lord. Perhaps tonight. Then in the morning as he arose, his first movement was to raise the blinds, look out upon the rising sun and say... Perhaps today, Lord. Perhaps today. We're to be looking. As we're looking, we're to be laying up our treasures in heaven. Because guess what? Treasures on earth won't last. Look around you down here. Everything you see down here as far as material goods, guess what? It won't make it. He says here, hasten the day. That is an interesting statement to me. In his sovereignty, God knows precisely the moment. At the same time, he seems to be saying that through carrying out the Great Commission, we can can maybe quicken the end. If he's delaying the end because men who need to be in the fold are not yet in the fold, then what do we need to do? Be preaching the gospel so they get in the fold. Hasten the day. Then he says, be stable. In verses 17 and 18, this is beyond our text this morning. But he says, don't grow complacent. Don't grow doubtful. Don't grow lazy in your devotion. And then he ends by saying what? Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. Grow in grace. Grow in knowledge. And put it to work. You see, folks, preparation doesn't just happen. You've got to take action. Dr. Stephen Olford once said, Make me holy by thy blood. Make me godly, Lamb of God. 
Keep me busy in the fray. Make me ready for that day. Be holy. Be looking. Lay up your treasures in heaven. Hasten the day. Be stable. And grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord. That's a good word as we close out one year and get ready to begin another. And remember... Remember, as Dr. Willis read, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work in the Lord is not in vain. We see in this chapter what God's going to do. One of these days, one of these days, it's going to be a wonderful life. What's amazing grace say when we've been there 10,000 years? Bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. It's a wonderful life. Would you stand please? Do you need Christ in your life? Is the Holy Spirit at work in your heart? Come to him today. I want to pray with you. Do you need a church home? We'd love to be your church home. Are you looking? Are you living like you're looking and leaving one day? I hope you are. Maybe you're too tied to things of this world. Your focus, your energies, your resources are going to things that don't really have eternal value. You need to change. You need to change. You need to live for Christ.